You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It isn't like the kid is locally famous for doing a good or a bad thing, and even if people knew his real name, it wouldn't change how they treat him unless they looked it up online, which is not something he wants to encourage. He himself, like most of the men living under the causeway, is legally prohibited from going online, but nonetheless, one afternoon, biking back from work at the Mirador, he strolls into the branch library down on Regis Road like he has every legal right to be there. The kid isn't sure how to get this done. He's never been inside a library before. The librarian is a fizzy lady, ginger-colored hair glowing around her head like a bug light, pink lipstick, freckles, wearing a floral print blouse and khaki slacks. She's a few inches taller than the kid, a small person above the waist but wide in the hips like she'd be hard to tip over. The sign on the counter in front of her says, Reference librarian Gloria something. The kid is too nervous to register her last name. She smiles without showing her teeth and asks if she can help him. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I don't know, actually. What are you looking for? You're like the reference lady, right? Right. Do you need to look up something in particular? The air conditioning is cranked and the place feels about 10 degrees cooler now than it did when the kid came through the door and he suddenly realizes he's shivering and thinks at first that it's the air conditioning, but the kid's not cold, he's scared. He's pretty sure he shouldn't be inside a public library, even though he can't remember there being any rules specifically against entering one as long as he's not loitering and it's not a school library and there's no playground or school nearby at least none that he's aware of. You can never be sure, though. Playgrounds and schools are pretty much lurking everywhere. And children and teenagers probably come in here all the time this late in the day to pretend they're doing homework or just to hang out. Russell Banks is the author of novels including Cloud Splitter, The Sweet Hereafter, Affliction, Continental Drift, The Reserve, Hamilton Stark and Family Life, He's received the Ingram Merrill Award, the John Dos Passos Award, the Literature Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Continental Drift and Cloud Splitter were Pulitzer Prize finalists. Affliction and Cloud Splitter were Penn Faulkner finalists. His new novel is Lost Memory of Skin. Thank you for joining me, Russell. Well, thank you for having me. This is a remarkable novel, and I'm just curious what made you set yourself such an ambitious goal to write a sympathetic novel about a character whom, if one were to describe him, would um, immediately alienate many readers' sympathies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's a convicted sex offender. We know that about him fairly early on, perhaps almost from the first paragraph or two. You can figure that out. Um, and he's a, he's a kid who's barely literate. He's 22 years old been kicked out of the army, um, a loser in every respect, unemployed, unemployable, manages to get through high school without becoming in the slightest literate, has no skill set uh, we can point to. But he's, he's an honest person and a person who wants to be a good person. That much we learn early on. And I think 
once I understood that about him as a character, my own compassion and my own affection began to grow. And he turns out to be a kind of a witty person as well. He's got a sense of humor that's sly and slightly skeptical, and, and that attracted me to him as I went along. But to get more directly into your question, what, a, you know, what made me decide to go ahead with this material, I think I, I tend to be, gra to, to be attracted to, through the writing of fiction, mystery. What is mysterious to me? What do I not understand? And that, of course, is often and usually, in fact, um, someone who is unlike me. Um, I, I'm not attracted and have no desire to write about someone who's like me. <laughs> I want to go to uh, to another person's inner life that is, is very unlike my own and try to understand that um, and try to see the world through that person's eyes if possible. And in a sense, as, uh, the kid posed a great mystery for me. Uh, I, um, I live in South Florida um, six months a year in, in Miami Beach, and about four years ago, there were some news articles starting to come out that pointed to the existence of a colony of convicted sex offenders living, homeless convicted sex offenders, uh, living out of necessity under this Tuttle Causeway which crosses from the mainland to Miami Beach. And I could see it from my terrace of my apartment. I could look out and see this causeway and where these men were living. There were at one point up to 100 of them, most of vary between 40 to 75 uh, men down there. And they were there because of a, a, a regulation which had been passed to pro that prohibited convicted sex offenders uh, from living anywhere within 2,500 feet of where children might gather, a schoolyard, a playground, or anything like that, which meant basically they couldn't live anywhere in the city. And it was a, an example of unintended consequences of good intentions once again, and, and that always attracts me, the irony of it, the sadness, and the absurdity of it. And this was all done with, of course, the compliance and the cooperation of city authorities and police and, and, and so on. But what it meant was that there was a colony of pariahs, of, of outcasts, uh, exiled to this spot. Um, a mix of men that ranged from sociopathic uh, serial rapists to, um, you know, some poor old drunk who uh, ended up uh, accidentally exposing himself to um, a kid like my kid who in his early 20s or late teens who had sex with his high school girlfriend and, and you know, who was under 18. They're all sex offenses and they're all sex offenders and they are, in a sense, permanently marked and thrown into this, this into this darkness, and, and so I just was drawn to that material, that that condition, that legal ramifications of it, the psychological and social ramifications of it, the human ramifications of it, really, because these are human beings, regardless of what we would like to think about them. Uh, we can't just, you know, the the law may not make many distinctions between them, but we have to make distinctions between them. And so that's what really drew me to the material. And, and I didn't consider it very seriously whether it would be of interest to anybody else. I rarely do that. I, I have to go with what's interesting to me. And then I don't worry about what, whether it's interesting or engaging or, or moving or whatever to, or amusing to, to anyone else until, until now, until the book is published. And then I sort of have to take it seriously and have to worry about the audience a little bit, but well, not in the process of writing. 
Well, I'm get, guessing that you don't have to worry about it in the process of writing because no matter what you write, it turns out to be engaging by virtue of the fact that you like your characters. And you seem to like all of these characters. You have, exhibit sympathy for them and even some of the ones who are arguably just pure evil. There's one character I think we don't like in yeah, here. Yeah, the shyster. But yeah, yeah. He, actually, you almost kind of like the shyster. The only one I didn't like was the mother. <laughs> oh, poor Adele, uh, the mother. Yeah, but the mother has, uh, the kid s- sort of reveals at a certain point that, um, that well, at least he wasn't sexually abused like his mother had been as a child, mm. and at least he uh, wasn't abandoned um, in the same way. Well, he was, of course, but uh, but uh, you, you get some very clear indication that uh, the the mother has come out of some uh, has a has a traumat traumatized background mm. uh, in some ways, and her behavior is shaped and dictated to not exclusively by any means, but to some degree uh, by that. And um, yeah, she's not a, an attractive person, but she may be someone we can at least understand and maybe recognize and say, yes, I know there are women like that out there, many, 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 who they start out as little girls and they end up as women and then they have a child and they are incapable of being um, maternal and, and protective and and, um, and they feel sorry for themselves instead of, uh, instead of for the child. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's there. The only character I felt um, myself, you know, trying to overcome repugnance for was the shyster who is he's what's called a chomo in the in the lingo of, of uh, sex offenders yeah which he's is, pretty evil he is and and he because he has no conscience he's also he's a powerful man or was until he's uh, caught trying to solicit uh, sex with little girls and at that point and he's distributing child pornography and at that point you realize but he has no guilt for it he has no shame He's cold, and he is a sociopathic personality, mm. and and uh, it's very hard for me. But I wanted a character like that, partly to contrast him with some of the other characters, like poor old Rabbit, the you know the alcoholic guy who lives down there, who got caught you know urinating in a parking lot, drunk at uh, you know in the middle of the night, and got busted for indecent exposure, and other characters like that. But you needed just for it to be realistic, if nothing else. You know, you had to have a character like the shyster in there, and and others that whose crimes are maybe a little more mysterious and ugly. But I was, in the end, trying to tell a story, not write a piece of investigative journalism mm-hmm. or sociological tract or political tract or anything of the sort. Uh, at the bottom. Yeah, top to bottom, I guess. Uh, I'm a, I'm a storyteller, and I get engaged by a character and the fate of that character as it's unfolding, and the conflicts that that character is trying to grapple with and and deal with, and, and the drama of his story or her story, if it happens to be the case, and and that's what finally keeps me going and keeps me engaged throughout the, as it turns out, three years or whatever it takes to write the book. You know, story itself is is an important part uh, of this book, um, and, and I think what's really interesting about it is uh, that humans are a narrative species. We define ourselves by our stories. If you ask somebody, "Who am I?" they're not going to give you statistics. They're going to tell you a story. Mm-hmm. And and I think what's interesting here is the way you've used story and storytelling to both conceal and reveal. 
the characters and mm -hmm. use the storytelling and characterization itself as part of the plot. That's right. And and how how you know the the, the first question is how can you know the the life and the inner life uh, of another human being and. Um, both the professor who is trying to understand and know the kid's story does it through interviewing, question and answer, and, and so forth, um, until you reach a chapter there where the, there's a chapter called The Kid's Story According to the Kid. Well, he's not being interviewed, and now you get the kid's story because um, he's, he's beginning to piece together his story. His own interior life is starting to get linkage between the parts of it. And At the beginning, he, he couldn't do that. He couldn't tell his story according mm -hmm. to the kid. Um, and then slowly the kid kind of reverses the, the polarity of the relationship, and, and before you know it, he's trying to get the professor's story. What's, the, what's his story? And, and he's interviewing the professor in a way and asking him questions, and the professor is evading and, 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 and blocking uh, any inquiries into his story until the very end, and then he tells a story about his own life uh, with the kid interviewing him, and it's not clear. Is this the truth or not the truth? And and then you have the kid has to figure. It's a, in the end, it's a kind of an epistemological novel. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like how can you know anything about another human being beyond the most superficial uh, characteristics? Well, I really like the uh, um, the way that the archetypal feel of this. Uh, it, it's mm -hmm. it's really interesting because you don't give anybody a proper name. Mm -hmm. Everybody, it's it's very much a fairy tale with the mm -hmm. kid. And the professor, and and you kind of wonder as I was reading this: is the professor is this Little Red Riding Hood, and the kid is Little Red Riding Hood, and the professor the is the big bad wolf? <laughs> you have the cop who's like the woodsman. You yeah. have the shyster, and you have uh, the writer who yeah, <laughs> who comes in later, towards yeah. the end. Yeah. So talk about creating, you know, uh, choosing to make this as a as a fairy tale and leaving out the proper names to kind of yeah, this, there, you're right to associate that aspect of the novel with fable or fairy tale. Uh, actually, I like the Red Riding Hood. I never thought of that, but I was trying to lift the story out of realism to some degree, not wholly, not totally, not the way say Robert Coover might or. or or even even someone like um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez might, you know, and make it kind of hyper real. But the the, the range of of, of uh, possibilities within the conventions of realism is very wide. You know, it goes from Emile Zola to Toni Morrison or 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 Gabriel Garcia Marquez to magical realism. If you want, you're still within that range of realism. And I wanted to come down somewhere at least in the middle and, and where you where fable starts to take over and archetypes start to emerge but it's not locked into that um, social into surrealism those. is how i took it social <laughs> surrealism that's not so bad yeah. <laughs> i like that i'll go with that so they, they give them names like that and of course the names quickly become who the people are i mm -hmm. mean uh, if i change halfway through i start you found out the professor had, had a name and it, you know it was, was dr block or something like that um it might be disappointing, and it would diminish him in a funny way, mm -hmm. and and have the opposite effect of particularizing him. Uh, and the same thing with the kid. If you found that his name was Bill, um, it would suddenly it would lose not just the residence and 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 the um, aura of a of a archetypal character, but uh, it would also, in a way, departicularize him in an odd reversal. Uh, I, so, I agree. Now, you know, when you started writing this, did you all always know that the professor would be a character, or did he just yes, show no, up in your... No, right? I, I knew that I would um, bring this uh, 
contrasting, dramatically contrasting figure <laughs> in both physically and socially and, and, and in every respect, partly. And, and mentally, too, because yeah. he's... No, he's he not, a genius, yes. Not, not only is he a genius, but whereas the kid can't even put together his own story, right. the professor has too many stories right. that he refuses to put together. That's exactly right. Yeah, he's a compartmentalized man. He mm-hmm. has uh, many lives and many identities, and they don't link up. Mm. And that provides his drama in a way. And, and a and good source of tension in a novel because you are, as a reader, I'm wondering, boy, what am I going to find out about this guy? And as you keep more and more, you find out the more and more on edge you are. Yeah, he, he, is, a, he is a kind of, of threatening and ominous figure. At first he seems quite custodial and protective and you're kind of glad to see him arrive there in the midst of the disastrous uh, event of the police breaking up the camp, encampment and the kid losing his job, and he's really at the bottom. Uh, and that's fairly early in the novel. And and, uh, and here comes the professor, this larger-than-life character, this morbidly obese man, but he's he's a, a powerful figure, and, and he's there are certain aspects of him which make him seem a lot more conventional than the kid, at least a lot more bourgeois than the kid, and, and, and socially powerful as well. But then he gradually becomes more and more menacing. You know, about, and about... A third of the way into the writing of the novel, when I was first first putting down the the rough draft, I realized I've I've got a, a kid here who's not quite an adult, even though he's 22 years old, and he's not quite innocent either, and and I've got this man who's trying to or seems to be protective and custodial and, and mentoring him in a certain way, who's also maybe not quite trustworthy and slightly menacing and he's physically vivid let's say you know because he is so obese i said this is familiar to me there's an echo of something here or a shadow and i began to think also i've got treasure maps and and buried treasures images like that are kind of peppering the place and it's in a semi-tropical world and and there are pirate stories coming along here and there and i thought i'm going back and reread treasure island because this is where I think the echo is coming from. Mm. I hadn't read it since I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. And I reread it, and of course, I thought Jim Hawkins and Long John Silver, they're archetypal, almost mythic characters, and that is an ancient form of story. The older, protective man who's not quite trustworthy and the younger, innocent boy who's about to become an adult or is trying to make that transition somehow through the guidance and protection of this man, and it's not quite a stable or trustworthy relationship. It's a conflict-laden one. And so I, I just consciously said, I'm going to allow this to be the shadow text, in a way, the the echo. And, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. You, you can hark back to these earlier ways and earlier forms of story and, 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 and you know, and, and not just update them, but just use them to create some of the bones of the story. And, and, and I was very grateful for that. Happens, turns out to be Treasure Island, a much better book than I would have said or than I remembered. I remembered loving it when I was a kid, but I wasn't aware of how well-written it was mm. and how efficiently told it was and, and, and smart it is. You know? Yeah, I know. It's a miracle of yeah. Uh, economy. Yeah. Uh, as is your book now, I, I love the prose feel of this, the way you've written the prose. It really just pulls us right in, and the pacing of the chapters and the structure of it. Um, so uh, talk about how much of that 
is uh, stuff that just pours off the tip of your pen or how much of that is um, just you throw a bunch of stuff at the canvas and then <laughs> come back and, and rework it till yeah, both actually yeah, I mean you know you feel so grateful when you go to work in the morning and you manage to write you know half a dozen paragraphs you know right straight through without crossing a word out because that so rarely happens but it does happen every once in a while but no I work uh, long and hard and revise 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 I write first in longhand and uh, I'm, I'm of the generation that began writing in longhand and, and then went to the typewriter and I still do that. I, there's something about the connection between my hand and the inner voice that I can hear in my ear that's di- more direct than a keyboard permits for me. But once I can get it onto the keyboard, then I can start playing with it. And um, once I get it onto the computer, and then, then the revising process begins, and, and I can move things around and, and, and you know, make endless revisions. And, and, um, and so, and I do, I mean, uh, it maybe just takes a year or so to get that first draft down, but then, and then I do work with the material over and over again. And I'm not just moving commas around when I'm doing that. I'm making, you know, really big shifts and scenes and lopping big chunks off and pulling chunks in and so forth. There's a real painterly feel to this. Is there? And, and I think it has to do with you, you have a real... Um, uh, a talent for giving us the the landscapes both inner and outer and and they often will will reflect one another and and I love this setting of Miami and this you I really feel like I could just go under that causeway I could be know exactly what it feels like to be there and in some of the scenes in the swamp and, and in that that little island the weird island where they yeah. go it's very creepy and the professor's house i could be right there standing uh-huh. behind him as he opens up the refrigerator <laughs> <laughs> surveys his vast domain he has surveys a, his domain food so- yeah, well you know i i began as a teenager and then into after i turned 20 and 21 uh, as a painter i wanted to be a painter Really? Originally, yeah, that I, makes it was sense. Really the only gift, uh, visible gift, I seemed to have. Um, you know, I could draw and I could paint, and people complimented me for it, and and uh, and I enjoyed it. It was great fun, and um, and, and so I, that's how I began, and um, and only gradually after that uh, turned to writing, and as I fell in love with literature. But I think that I have it's led me to. Uh, a kind of operating principle almost, is that if I can't see it when I'm writing, then there's something wrong with the writing. I have to stop. Because for me, writing fiction is almost out-of-body travel. It's, it's, it's an auditory and visual hallucination. Um, I do literally see what I'm writing. And when I can't do that, I feel that um, I'm making, there's something wrong here. My, my relation to the material is clouded. I'm either afraid of it, or I'm unsure of myself in it, or I don't know enough, um, and I better go out and find out more information about whatever I'm trying to describe. But I really, literally need to see it, and I and I need to hear the voices. I need it's the auditory hallucination as well. The, the dialogue has to sound in my ear, not just on the page. Um, and you know, uh, Joseph Conrad said. Um, Above all else, I want my readers to see. And he meant literally. He didn't mean understand. He meant see. Uh, and I feel the same way. Uh, because I need to see, then I assume that the reader will also be able to see. 
I think this has something to do with why uh, filmmakers are attracted to my books. They read the book and they kind of see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it, it turns out not, most of the books are not easily adapted, <laughs> believe me, but uh, partly because of the material, if nothing else. But when you read a novel that you can literally see into, you can see what's being described in front of you, you're not um, dealing with just the the language and cutting, trying to cut your way through the language to see um, I think it, it, it's a very inviting and, and, and powerful way to tell a story. It's, it's the reading. Your books have a great uh, immersive feel for the reading experience. And, and I think, actually, for me, that's what makes reading so powerful is, is you provide us with a good script, so to speak, mm-hmm. and we get to direct and people the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes reading such an such a, an interesting experience because we have to put a lot of our effort right. into it right. as readers and that effort is rewarded right well, reading go- fiction is it's an interactive experience you mm-hmm. know with, with the, between the writer and the reader i mean you bring your the reader brings his or her um inner life and memories and dreams and mm-hmm. experiences and and fantasies and so forth to the act of reading, the writer does the same when, when you're when you're setting th- things down, and there's a meeting in between where neither one quite controls it. You know, there's a there's a third thing that's created, a third vision, mm-hmm. uh, a third narrative in a way that's created, and 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 the reader does that. It's not the same at all with film or with TV or any of the the, the, the visual narratives, um, where you're sort of stuck with what's there. Mm-hmm. You know, you right. you can't change what's on the screen, um, and um, it doesn't matter what your memories are or your past experiences are. You cannot change it. <coughs> Whereas with fiction, you know, it's like dreaming. It is like dreaming. Now, uh, parts of this are not necessarily a good dream. No, <laughs> true. One of the things that you talk about here, and, and I, there's a couple of things that, that about the that we learn about the kid, and one of the things I think that's you do very well with, you totally understate it, I think, but it's powerful, is the lack of a father in his life. And this is a very common problem mm-hmm. uh, in our society. And I think that as a work, I like this book because it speaks to um, the lower levels of American society, mm-hmm. the lower levels of the American economy, mm-hmm. the people who aren't rock stars, the people who aren't movie stars, the people who aren't making a lot of money. Um, and I, the vision of the way the kid was brought up, I thought was really interesting because I could immerse myself in that childhood. And you learn what it's like to not have a father. Yeah, and, and without his complaining about it. I mean, he, he doesn't exactly. complain. He, he just puts it out there when it's pretty clear he was a sort of a feral child. He sort of raised himself. Uh, his mother works, you know, eight, ten hours a day, and then she goes out at night to the bars of, of Calusa and, and hooks up with whomever she can brings him home, and then the guy's gone in the morning. And um, so the kid is essentially raising himself, and you see him from fairly early on, you know, from 10, 11 years old, doing that and, and not complaining about it, not feeling uh, it's normal. I mean, that's the thing. When you, you normalize that kind of life, and that's how I pre- tried to present it, was mm-hmm. say, oh, no, this is, I didn't say it was normal in the world, but it's normal to the kid. Exactly, and that's what's so effective. Yeah, and I think that our heart goes out to him for that because mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't he doesn't see that this is that he's in some way deprived. In fact, he's internalized society's view of him. They see the world sees him as a as he says at one point a person who has no specialty, 
he doesn't even have religion, you know. The, when he's in the army, briefly, and and he knows that the guys there have like some guys have NFL uh, and and NBA kind of knowledge and specialty, and then there's the Christians. They have a specialty. There's all these different specialties. Some of them have sex as a specialty, sexual conquest and stories. Some of them have history of violence that they can talk about. He has no specialty, kind of a, a lost soul. But on the other hand, I think we can perceive him as like not a, an unusual or strange or an exotic person. There are millions of kids yeah, like him. Millions of kids like him. Mm -hmm. And part of his, who brings him up, if it's not his mother and yeah. it's not his father, it's his computer. And I think That's this right. is a, a powerful statement you make yeah. about, about the internet and, and you know, its, its impact on our lives. And, and you can read a lot of science fiction, and I do, and I like science fiction, that talks about the impact yeah. of technology on our lives. And in a sense, this is a, is a powerful work of science fiction, talking about how, how technology really has impacted our lives right now. Subjectively, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing. And, and the fact that it has erased, it does, as for the kid it has, and we see, we can generalize from that, the, the line between fantasy and reality, especially mm -hmm. with regard to his erotic life and his social life and, and, and so on. Uh, he lives in that gray zone between the two without making a distinction between the two. Um, and increasingly, our society is, is, is doing that, living, living, you know, ha calling our friends on Facebook friends, for instance. <laughs> um, I mean, this is a strange zone that we're coming to live in. And, um, and the kid is an exemplar in, in many ways uh, of that because uh, he, he, he slides into it at about the age of 11 or so. And then before that, he's, uh, before long, he, he's, he's become addicted to watching pornography on his computer. And, and, and that's, that's his sex life. That's his life with other human beings. And that's his life with the body, even though he's a virgin. You know, he's this odd combination of, of innocence and what we would normally think of as, as knowledge and guilt. There's one point I think he thinks if the internet is the snake in, in paradise, then pornography is the forbidden fruit, and the snake gets you to eat the forbidden fruit. And he makes that kind of rudimentary biblical interpretation of his experience. This is uh, shortly after he starts reading the Bible for the first time, which he finds yeah. in, amidst the, the papers of the most heinous of the, of the men in this right. encampment, the shyster. You know, you make a lot of interesting uh, kind of uh, comparisons. And one of the things you were talking about, uh, fantasy, one of the things that, that the, I think it's the kid who thinks is that um, the, the kid cannot distinguish between fantasy and plans. And, yeah. and the professor can, and yeah. I think that's an, that is a really scary thought. And yeah. that, has a, that goes out much wider than just the oh, kid. Yeah. If you have no power, uh, you can't make plans. And the kid has no power, at least in the early parts of the story. Gradually, he gains kind of control over his life. It can make decisions. It can make plans. Toward the end, he's making plans. In fact, the whole last couple of pages are, are descriptions of his making plans and taking control in a sense of his own destiny. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're rather modest plans, but, <laughs> but, but he's thinking ahead in a way he hasn't throughout the novel and has only gradually learned how to do and only gradually become sufficiently empowered to do that. He matures, uh, actually, finally. Yes, exactly. Well, that, he, maturity, it becomes possible for him, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so, in a sense, I think it's, a, it's an optimistic 
story. It's, it, it, I won't call it a happy ending story, but he's alive and he has a future and he's moving toward that future and, it's, and he can to some degree control what that future is, the shape of that future. But that distinction or be the inability to make the distinction between fantasy and plans is, is a way of saying people who have no power only have fantasies. They don't make plans. That's why they're the ones who buy the lottery tickets. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, the professor is a considerably more complicated character, and he's, you do a fantastic job with him in terms of setting him up, and gradually we like him at first, and the more we get to know him, the less, the more we get to know about him, the less we know about him. And all these stories we hear and all these narratives mm -hmm. start to seem more and more suspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I've known people like that, not many, but a few, um, who have secrets from their secrets in a way you know <laughs> compartmentalize their life and never feel the need to um, connect them and in fact do everything they can to keep them from knowing about each other and you know every now and then you hear a story about someone who is um, you know a wife and kids in Philadelphia and then a wife and kids in Westchester County and somehow he manages to keep them quite distinct and separate from each other and I often felt when I read those stories um, you know because they go on over years and all that I think I, I think you know that person probably when he's with one family doesn't even know the other family exists and then when he's with the other family the same thing back I mean this walled off from each other of course, eventually these walls start to crumble. You can only sustain them for so long. And that's what this professor's story is as it unfolds, is the gradual crumbling of the walls that he's built between his various uh, secrets and lies. Now, um, one of the things that I think uh, makes this book uh, so powerful is the, the idea of uh, stories, all the various kinds of stories we have, online identifications, you know, some the kid has an online idea not a good idea <laughs> I mean, that's a name you know his handle is, is Iggy's bro and, yeah. and, and it's brandy 18 and, and uh, who you know is that's a yeah that's right they're they're created Story. assumed not even created but yeah there was there's stories that are associated with with the particular medium that they're they're meeting over yeah and, and I think all this um, the, the power of this novel, really, is to speak to the, the power of story and narrative, how we use it to, to create our own identities, and how, as we create our own stories, we you know, can trap ourselves into lives and find ourselves trapped, mm -hmm. and also free ourselves from the traps that we've set. And mm -hmm. I think we see that in a great way in this book, and I, I think that's a, a powerful a message. I wanted to, when you were plotting this book, did you understand where it was going all the way, or did you discover those stories or how those stories, did they tell themselves to you? You know, I, I don't think I, I understood it ahead of time, let's say that, but when those themes emerged, I could recognize them, I mm. could see them, and I could pursue them then and say, oh yeah, this is really about how we depend upon narrative in order to make ourselves real to ourselves and real to others and known to ourselves and known to others and the difficulty of doing that in an authentic and reliable way is extreme and I, I could see that as it emerged and, and of course it's in a way it's a self-reflective uh, aspect of the book too because the book is an attempt to 
tell a story mm-hmm. uh, about an unknowable um, or seemingly unknowable kind of human being, uh, a person who would seem to have no story if you ran into him on the, you know, in the mall or on the street or anywhere. You, you would say, oh, there's no story there. That kid's uh, his only story is a story of losing, and if anything. And, you, know, you just would give him the credit for having a story. But once you have a story, then you're a fellow human being. And um, and you have therefore a coherent and, and linked up uh, interior life, and and I think when that's why to me the novel in some ways is the most democratic of literary forms, you know, because it it allows us to enter into the subjective life of another human being and to give it meaning and to see meaning in it. I should put it that way. And when you can see meaningfulness in in the inner life of another human being, especially another human being whom we might otherwise dismiss or who seems on the surface to be powerless, then you're it's a kind of a democratic uh, perception, a democratic move toward other people. You know, it's it's uh, it's not the great leveler; it's the great um, uh, lifter of um, of the ordinary and of the seemingly meaningless into meaningfulness. This book really does celebrate the lives of of men, mostly, mm-hmm. whom you would think absolutely, positively could never be celebrated. And, and there's so many, for a novel that involves characters who are chomos and mm-hmm. yeah. child molesters and, and you know, uh, people as sex offenders, mm-hmm. it's sweet and charming and very engaging and there's uh, some really lovely moments mm-hmm. there's a moment when they form a community with the mm-hmm. professor's help yeah. and you just think wow that's right on <laughs> 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 yeah they're building a good latrine for once <laughs> cleaning that place up yeah i know uh then also I, I think one of the redeeming qualities of the kid is that he he can be very funny at times mm. you know? oh, i mean there's a kind of dopey joke he, he does with it what gets him fired from his job at the Mirador Hotel where he he's, um, he's, he sees a guy he's pretty sure is O.J. Simpson and then there's a business about the half a pair and all that and, <laughs> and he gets he insults his boss but he's doing it in a way because it's it's a joke to him you know it's a kind of a, a tease and a joke and and I think that there are qualities of his mind that are really kind of a touchingly funny and Mm -hmm. and all you say in the midst of all this this kid can still crack a joke and he calls you know he decides to call the 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 professor his nickname for him is haystack and (laughs) and you say that's right the guy probably does look like a haystack (laughs) you know too uh, since we detect that kind of sense of humor in the prose from the beginning Mm -hmm. it it really helps us engage with the character and really um I, you know, we enjoy being with him. Yeah. Even though we don't know about, there's a lot of doubt about him from the beginning, and he's with all these very unsavory types. Mm. His, the way you work his prose and his perceptions are all kind of this, it's a very dry kind of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gets us, gets under our skin immediately, and mm. we like the guy. And that really helps drive the book, too. I'm glad of that, of course, and 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 relieved to hear it, um, because uh, it's more or less how I saw the kid, and um, and why I was drawn to him and and had affectionate regard for him um, over the whole of the story. Uh, and it's a page turner too. I think that yeah, that in good. terms of, you know, uh, as a straightforward in many ways a, a straightforward mystery, 
Right. We don't. There's something that's happened. We don't know what it is. There's something that's going to happen, and we don't know what it is. Right. You really drive that forward with with the uh, characterizations in a way that is really quite compelling. You really want to find out what these people are going to, what's going to happen to them, because you really care. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, it isn't just. Yeah. There is. There is a mystery. There is suspense, but it's meaningful suspense mm-hmm. um, because you 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 get attached uh, early on to this kid and I hope you know right from that scene in the library where he goes in and and, and you uh, and he looks his own looks himself up on online in the National Sex Offender Registry and and um, can locate his own face see his own face his mugshot and, and and right over the house where he, his mother lives and where he lived um, from there uh, the horror he has and the shame he has when he does that and I think from there you become attached to him. And then through also the humor, I mean, he, you know, the, the observations of regard to the librarian, you know, it might be hard to tip over because she's got wide hips. And, you know, <laughs> and it goes on with saying, you know, she's, she's not a hottie. She's very low on the hottie, hotness scale and things like that. Um, it, they, they draw you in, I think, to the kid. So then you care about the, the questions that, that's, that are suspenseful, I mean, suspense is basically the raising and then the slowly, gradually answering of a question, uh, become meaningful mm. uh, because you're, you've attached yourself emotionally uh, to this young man. You, you do a good job, too, here of making us think about um, the state of 21st century America. Um, you just alluded to one of the things that, you know, it's kind of frightening even though it, I suppose we really want to know where these people are, it's kind of frightening that anybody could go into a library and see, have this pop up. Um, this, these kids have these ankle uh, locator bracelets. Yeah, um, yeah it's permanent uh, surveillance. It's uh, lifelong surveillance, yeah. And it's, you know, it's very Orwellian. Mm-hmm. But, um, and what's nice about the way you paint this is, on one hand, we're, as citizens... When we hear about this as citizens, we think, oh, my God, this is great. I'm really glad. When we see it from the inside, it's another thing entirely because mm-hmm. the kid has really accepted it. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just the way he's, what he's got to deal with. Right. But then we think, God, I sure wouldn't want to have that happen to right. me. Yeah, I know, or anyone in my family mm-hmm. either. And then you know that what the kid does is actual crime uh, is the sort of thing your sort of your dumb cousin could do, you know, or or any number of your you know friends, or you can imagine very easily you know, someone stumbling into that and 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 crossing that line. Sure, it's a crime, and he crosses the line, but. Uh, on the other hand, you, it's not hard to imagine someone doing. It. He's not a psychopath, he, and and he, he's not um, violent uh, in any way. He's he's just sexually confused and 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 naive. Yeah, he's his crime yeah. is naivete yeah. and, and immaturity. Yeah, he's he's younger and, and loneliness, you know, sure. and things like that. <laughs> when you were writing this, uh, did you first conceive of these uh, people as just the pariahs, and and then? You know the outcasts, and then kind of explore them, or did you grow the characters from the inside? I think they they grew up out of the context. Um, I was certainly conscious of <clears throat> of the um, the kind of people, the context, the immediate surround that I was dealing with, um, and uh, I wasn't going to spread that um, net widely over the city or 
try to cover a whole lot of other kinds of lives, and I really wanted to deal with these lives. And, and they kind of grew up out of the material itself, with the exception of the kid. I was very conscious of who I was going to spend my time with mm. uh, and who was going to be at the center of the novel from the beginning. Um, and the professor. Uh, I knew that these two characters were going to be the the poles uh, of, that would drive the narrative, the relationship between them. But then characters like Rabbit, you know, who shows up, who's, you know, uh, uh, an older black guy who's a drunk, who's um, kind of sweet and befriends the kid in certain ways. And then, or Paco, the bodybuilder who lives down there, and, and, uh, and the shyster. These characters kind of grew up out of the material itself. And then later when he, when he goes to the great Pensacola swamp and he's on his uh, flatboat like Huck Finn on a raft out there in the jungle, um, the characters who appear out there, uh, the, the Dolores Driscoll and her husband who run the store and so forth, um, and then the writer who appears, and then the, um, the professor's wife who kind of grew up out of the material itself. They all kind of came up as I was working. Now, are you already working on another novel? I can't say I'm working on it. Uh, I, I'm dying to get back to work, um, and, and I have a novel so, uh, that I've begun to imagine and, and glimpse in a way and um, and I can't really get there until I can sit down at my desk day after day after day and right now I'm doing this five-week book tour across the country and in hotels and airplanes and, and studios radio and television studios and so forth so and reading in bookstores so it, it's really impossible for me to do anything more than just try to keep up uh, but the end of October I'll get back home and um, and then I'll go to Miami for the winter and hole up and work then. Well, we look forward to your next novel. I've been speaking with Russell Banks. His new novel is Lost Memory of Skin. Thank you for joining me, Russell. Well, thank you for speaking with me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.